Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There's a powerful scene toward the end of the movie Schindler's List when Oscar Schindler, the once self-absorbed German businessman, comes face to face with the question of what more he might have been able to do to save those who were being killed by the Nazis. Schindler, who had little concern for the well-being of others for most of his life, had been led to an awareness of the suffering of Jews under Hitler's regime by one of his employees, an accountant, who worked feverishly to save as many as he could from the death chambers by putting them to work as unpaid laborers in Schindler's factories. Slowly, as he watches the Nazis become more and more brazen in their atrocities, something begins to change inside Oscar's heart. He comes to realize the utter privilege he has enjoyed as a wealthy member of the German establishment and eventually dedicates his entire fortune to rescuing as many Jews as he can with his wealth and his influence. As the Nazi regime collapses with allied forces only miles from his office, at the urging of those they have saved who are convinced that their lives are now at stake at the hands of Russian forces, Schindler and his wife prepare to flee. But before stepping into the car to leave, the accountant who enlisted him in the work of saving the lives of thousands of people presents Schindler with a small ring inscribed with the words from the Torah, whoever saves the life of one person has saved the life of all humanity. Schindler is so overcome with emotion that he begins to cry. And then he looks at his car and the pen that's on his jacket and he says, but I could have saved more. I should have saved more. Why did I keep the car? Why did I need this pen? And he falls to the ground in uncontrolled sobs. And he cries out, I could have saved 10. I could have saved 12 more people. It's a powerful and haunting scene. It's a moment that one is never likely to forget. And it gets at the very heart of what Jesus is trying to teach in today's gospel reading. As we have seen over the last few weeks, Jesus has become more and more passionate in his teaching, urging the disciples and the crowds that follow them to consider more carefully of the nature of the life to which they are committing themselves in their pursuit of the beloved community of God's reign. Jesus has been clear that the admiration and the adulation of the crowds are only a distraction from the truth of God's will and way. The gospel does not lead to fame and fortune. It leads to the cross. That message doesn't sit well with the disciples and the crowds who seem to either misunderstand at best or 
to completely ignore it at worst. They see that the power and the adulation that comes from growing throngs of followers as the fodder necessary to light a fire of freedom and liberation from Rome. But time and time again, Jesus tries to make clear to them that the purpose of his ministry is far larger and more transformative than mere rebellion against oppressive religious and political forces. Jesus is committed to seeing the complete and total renewal of society built on a foundation of justice and mercy and peace. The disciples have the right idea. They have passion inside of them, but the scope of their imagination is just too small. And then Mark gives us this story about this rich young man who walks up to Jesus and begs to know what he must do in order to find a lasting life of meaning and purpose. That's really what he's asking here. But again, the question is far too limited. He asks out of concern for self with little or no regard for others. Jesus, ever the insightful one in Mark's gospel, sees through the pretense and responds with that traditional answer, you know what the teachers of our faith say, obey the commandments and you will live. But the young man immediately responds, I know that teaching and I've kept the commandments all my life, but there's still an emptiness inside of me. That's, that's really what he's saying in the response. What's interesting is that Mark tells us here that Jesus is moved by love for this young man. It's the only instance in Mark's gospel where Mark uses that term, love, to describe how Jesus felt about someone. There's something in this young man's authenticity and his questions that truly moves Jesus. He's searching for something bigger, something more than just comfort in the moment, even if he struggles to find the words to describe his yearning. Jesus looks at this young man, clearly knowing something of his social and economic position, and says, there's only one thing left to do. Go and sell everything you have and give the proceeds to those who are poor. That's how you can find true and lasting life. Those words cut to the very heart of this young man. He feels their truth in his bones, but he's utterly terrified by the idea. His questions are rooted in a luxury of his position in society. He has the time to sit and ponder the quest for the meaning of life, whereas most people simply struggle for life itself. He had hoped that Jesus would offer some words of encouragement, insight that would empower him to ponder more deeply the mysteries of life. But what Jesus has done is to take away the luxury of the quest. It isn't enough to contemplate the search for meaning and purpose. One must actually get involved and do something. 
comfort and security are barriers to living a full and abundant life. That is found only in giving oneself away for the sake of others. These are difficult words for that young man to hear, and so he walks away in despair, unable to accept the truth. The disciples also struggle with their meaning. That's why Jesus looks at them and laments the ways in which the things that we own end up owning us. It's easier, he says, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a person with much wealth and many possessions to enter the beloved community of God's reign. Those words utterly shock the disciples when they hear them. They've grown up in a society that has taught that prosperity and position and power and privilege were signs of God's blessing. If wealthy people can't be saved, then there's no hope for any of the rest of them. For God, though, Jesus says, nothing is impossible. And the disciples then immediately push back. But wait, we've left everything behind to follow you, so surely we're in good standing with God, right? Jesus senses their defensiveness and assures them that no sacrifice made for the sake of God's kingdom will ever go unrewarded. There is a sense of community rooted in boundless generosity that is created by giving oneself away for the sake of others. The disciples will come to know that deeper truth in their own lives as they experience the family of faith that is born in the church. We live in a time where the most popular and listened to voices in Christianity are those of the prosperity preachers. Those who urge us to believe that really the heart of the gospel is for all of us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Their words stand in marked contrast to the words of Jesus. The gospel isn't about getting more or having more, but Rather, it's about giving away what we have to ensure the well-being of others and to build a deeper and stronger sense of interconnectedness among the whole human family. I wonder what the prophet Amos might say in response to those prosperity preachers. Or what Amos might say in response to the claims of those who say that their religious freedom is being taken away by simply being asked to wear a mask or get vaccinated. With the, admon with the admonition to forsake evil and to do what is right even in the face of tremendous opposition, what might the prophet say about those who demand that we deny entry to or to deport everyone who seeks refuge here in the richest nation on earth. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that the words of God slice through the fortresses of comfort and security that we so often create for ourselves, the ways of life that leave us so often feeling 
frustrated and lonely. And they call us to follow in the footsteps of a great high priest who knows our struggles intimately and yet walks the way of sacrificial suffering for the sake of the world. Therein is found the meaning that we seek and the community for which we so deeply yearn. One of my favorite movies is Labyrinth. I don't know if anybody's seen it. It's the old Jim Henson movie from, I think, 1986. There's a great character in that movie that I've always loved. She's known simply as the junk lady. She's bent over by the weight of all the possessions that she carries. But each one she is convinced is a treasure too precious to lose. Her load of belongings is so bulky that she struggles to get through doors or to even really move at all. When she encounters Sarah, a young woman who is searching for her lost brother, the junk lady starts piling Sarah high with everything she can reach, insisting that this is all too important to lose and you can't worry about anything else. You have to focus on your possessions. For just a few moments, Sarah is mesmerized by the things in her arms, but the words of an old poem break through her trance and remind her of what's truly important in life, the people she loves. When I think of that camel trying to get through the eye of a needle, I think about the junk lady. She's carrying too much. She's clinging to too many things to ever be able to get through that doorway. And it's weighing her down and it's keeping her from any sort of life. How does that camel get through the eye of a needle? By letting go of the things to which it so tenaciously clings and by giving itself away in service to others. Amen.